Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now today we're discussing one of my favourite historical topics and that's buried treasure. Who doesn't love buried treasure? We all dream of finding it. It's kind of like an archaeological lottery ticket. And we're going to talk about it because of that great new film on Netflix, The Dig. And that, of course, tells the story of how this British widow in the 1930s, just before the Second World War, hired an archaeologist to dig up all these mounds in her backyard. Uh, Well, actually, it was a bit more than her backyard, wasn't it? It was her field. Uh, She was a bit posher than just having a backyard, frankly. Mrs. Pretty, I think you'd better come and see. Why would anyone want to bury a ship? I would expect this is a grave of a, a warrior or a king. But there's more. There's much more. In that mound, they found something truly astonishing because they found what today we know as the Sutton Who dig. And it was two 6th, 7th century cemeteries, these burial sites, including a ship's burial, the remains of the ship. Of course, you can sort of see beautifully recreated in the film. And that threw an enormous amount of light uh, on this whole period of history that we didn't know so much about. And what it also showed was the amazing amount of treasure some of these people uh, were buried with. Which makes me think, come on, there must be lots more buried treasure out there in the British Isles. We must be walking over it every day of the week, probably. So I really want to know where it is, frankly, because uh, I think I've got more chance of digging up treasure than I have of winning the lottery. So, you know, there must be other Sutton Who's out there. So in order to find that out and see if he knows, is a man called Professor Mark Horton, who's Professor of Archaeology and Cultural Heritage. And he's a Director of Research at the Royal Agricultural University. Mark, thanks so much for coming on the pod. It's really nice to have you. Hi, Guy. It's great to be able to talk about treasure. <laughs> yeah, we love treasure. Now, first of all, could you uh, just tell me just a, a, a little bit about, about Sutton Who, what was found there and whether the film's accurate? You've obviously seen it. Yeah, yes. Uh, it, it's a very compelling um, portrayal of what it was really like in the late 1930s, um, you know, class come to archaeology and it was all about class and conflict and and this wonderful idea that, you know, she, Mrs. Pretty wanted to know what was in her mounds and she hired the local archaeologist, um, Basil Brown, who did a superb job. But when the treasure began to emerge, he was shooed off the dig and um, um, the experts, who actually were not really experts, they were students from Cambridge University, um, who ha- probably had much less digging experience than Basil Brown ever did, were then brought in um, to complete the excavation. And it was on the eve of the Second World War. Um, the stuff was literally, the stories I remember hearing about it, because the students who dug uh, were my professors at Cambridge in the late 1970s. Oh my gosh, so you've got a direct link to the dig in that respect. That's that's right, and stories of, you know, all this garnet jewellery being coming out of people's pockets, the local pub and so forth, um, were, were even recounted then. Um, and, it's, I mean, it's not to overstate it, it's, it is the most important archaeological discovery um, made in Britain, really. You know, it's up there with Tutankhamun in Egypt or whatever, as this unbelievable collection of royal treasure um, dating to the mid-7th century, early 7th century, and probably associated with King Redweld, who was a historically attested king of East Anglia. So, I mean, this really was... You couldn't imagine a better find. I mean, this is ultimate treasure. Can we describe it as that? Does that sound too simplistic? Well, yes, it was ultimate. I mean, of course, you know, archaeologists hate treasure. 
Um, we don't go digging holes looking for treasure. Um, we go looking for stories and information. Um, and in some ways, to tell you the truth, Guy, treasure is a bit of a nuisance um, because what happens is that it gets publicity and enthusiasms and public engagement um, and rather diverts from the, the purpose of the scientific purpose of what we're trying to do. Um, but in this case, I think it was a combination, not just the ship burial, which is this extraordinary remains that Basil Brown uncovered, literally following fine lines in the soil um, yeah. and locating the position of the nails. Um, but it was the connection of the, the artefacts that seemed to say so much about royalty and kingship in one of the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And that's really what makes it all so exciting for us as archaeologists. So I suppose for an archaeologist, I mean, I know you want to get away from this word treasure, but kind of everything is treasure for you, isn't it? Because a nail or a scrap of fabric or a broken bit of pot, that tells us so much about, you know, our, our ancestors, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, that's right. And in fact, Sutton Hoo, the first indication that this was a really important discovery was a ship's rove. That's a particular type of nail that was used in the construction of Viking and Anglo-Saxon vessels. And, you know, Basil Brown got more excited about the ship rove than he did ever about the garnet jewellery. <laughs> so, now, I mean, you've you've been on a dig like that, haven't you? I think you told me that you've been on something fairly similar. Could you tell me a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, well, I could. I mean, this idea of the sort of the country house dig, uh, when I was a student at Cambridge, I participated in the most wonderful excavation in Kent, near Eastry, where we stayed in the local manor house, um, not unakin to Mrs Pretty's house. Um, we had kedgeree yeah. for breakfast, and then we would then, as it were, saunter out um, to excavate these Anglo-Saxon barrows, um, which were in her land, on her ground. Um, and um, it lasted about two to three weeks and the, the finds were brought back. And if I remember, we stored them in, in seed trays on little beds of moss, just like they did in Sutton Hoo in, the, in, in her greenhouse um, to dry off. It was all wonderfully arcane. <laughs> and what were, you, what were you excavating? What were you digging up? Oh, exactly the same period, uh, mid, mid early 7th century burial mounds. They weren't royal, but they were pretty high status. There was lots of nice stuff associated with the burials because at that point, the Saxons are pagan and are accompanying their burials with grave goods to accompany them to the afterlife. So yes, Anglo-Saxon burials are where you find this stuff from the humble soldier or humble peasant will have maybe a brooch or something like that to, to great kingly burials like at Sutton Hoo. And I mean, Sutton Hoo's not the only one. There have been other kingly burials that have been found, um, but perhaps much less well known. Well, could you give us an example of one of those? I think maybe Sutton Hoo's getting all the limelight thanks to it being in the movies. It may, maybe there's another one that you can draw our attention to. Well, well, Guy, you probably never heard of Prittlewell, for example. No, well, I mean, never heard of it. I'm so ignorant, but hopefully I'm not the only ignorant person out there. It's just on the outskirts of South End on Sea. And a few years ago, about a decade ago, um, as part of a rescue archaeology project, a huge... Um, burial chamber, buried burial chamber, which would have been lined in wooden logs and was excavated. And hanging from that burial chamber was a group of treasures uh, which are comparable to those found at Sutton Hoo, uh, all laid out around a central burial, who was probably one of the kings of the East Saxons, or of Essex, if you like, rather than of the Anglians, uh, and um, dates to exactly the same time as the burial at Sutton Hoo. 
So, and, and do we know the name of the bling king of Essex, if you like? Do we know, well, do we yes. know his name? Um, no, there had been various speculations um, about it because the, the, the issue is the kings of Essex were converted to Christianity quite early on. And so it's this period, um, but then returned back to paganism. So there had been candidates um, suggested, as indeed Redwell has been suggested for East Anglia. But the trouble with these royal burials is they don't have a little plaque on them that says, you know, <laughs> here lies King Redwell. And there's another one that uh, was excavated in the 19th century, or actually late 18th century, a place called Taplow, uh, which is just next to the Great Western Railway as you're leaving Maidenhead and going towards um, yeah. Reading. And this was a huge mound found in the churchyard of Taplow Church that again contained very rich material, some spectacular glass vessels. Um, for example, uh, only a few of them have survived. Most of them was lost because it was such an old excavation. Um, but we know that that's almost certainly another royal burial associated with one of the kings, probably of the uh, West Saxons in this case. So um, why are these obviously very high status individuals being buried with their treasure? Is, is this saying I'm taking it off to the, the, the afterlife or is it a way of kind of making sure no one gets their hands on their loot? Well, I think um, it's it's largely to accompany one to the afterlife. And what's really interesting is that the Sutton Hoo burial, the fact it was in a ship, suggests that that whole idea of disappearing off to um, another world, which of course is, is described in great detail in our, one of our earliest and greatest early poems, Beowulf, um, that describes the um, warrior placed in a ship and the ship sailing out across the oceans. Um, and it's thought that Sutton Hoo is the same idea of placing a burial with the deceased with everything that he might need in the aftermath and including Sutton Hoo were the coins which were Merovingian gold coins which were there to pay the, the oarsmen who would have propelled him there. Now I live down in deepest Wiltshire and not a million miles from Stonehenge and on in, in Cranbourne Chase and, and around me there are a lot of mounds and tumuli and, and all sorts of mysterious features in the landscape. Now, why, why aren't all these being dug up? I mean, surely these all contain treasures. So I, know, I know I'm being probably a little bit naive, but I mean, is there any reason why every mound <laughs> is not being dug up? Well, um, firstly, the, uh, most of the mounds are actually protected as scheduled ancient monuments, so it's illegal to dig them today, and though that protection has been in place since the late 19th century. Uh, there was a tradition in the 19th and late 18th century of literally going in and digging these mounds. We have stories of antiquarians going in with their gardeners and digging holes, and if you actually look at your mounds, Guy, carefully, you'll see practically yeah. every single one of them has got a little dip in the top where antiquarian has been in hunting for treasure. Unfortunately, a lot of that treasure has subsequently been lost, was very poorly researched and recorded. Some of it turns up into museums, but some of it was just in private collections and has been dispersed. So, you know, we don't want to go into these places, um, you know, just looking for treasure because, A, they'll probably all be looted. Um, but secondly, um, we need to leave those for future generations when science and the science of the investigation of these places is much more developed. Oh, I see. So, OK, well, that's fair enough. So I will. I'm going to crawl up one of those mounds soon if I if it if it's on land, I'm allowed to do it. And I'll have a look for your <laughs> your, your looters dip, as I might call it. 
I know this sounds like a, a again. I know that you're very wary of this obsession with treasure, so do forgive me. But I and I, and I know that you know even humble artifacts and remains are, are treasures in many ways because they tell us so much and tell us you know riches of knowledge rather than just gold and jewels. But I mean, I know this sounds like kind of the former U.S. Defense Secretary's known unknowns and known unknowns. But you know, what else is out there? What what is your sort of suspicion of what what remains to be found? Are there more? you know, bling kings of Essex, you know, their sort of buried treasure sitting around somewhere waiting for us to stumble upon? Yes, I am absolutely sure there are. Um, we, we, we have a very handful of these royal, very high status royal burials. And um, if we look at the, the, hep, what's the heptarchy, the seven kingdoms of Anglo-Saxon England in this period in the late 6th, early 7th century, they all had rulers um, associated who would have had burials of this type and so you know there is still probably some to find i mean one of the the great missing burials in british archaeology is that of king pender uh, he um, was uh, the ruler of mercia uh, in the seventh century the richest and probably the most energetic of Anglo-Saxon kings in the 7th century um, who created Mercia, that's the middle part of England, um, into a unified kingdom, fought battles with all his neighbours. Um, he was a pagan. He was resolutely refused to become a Christian, unlike the kingdoms around him. And, um, you know, his burial place has never been found. Maybe one day it may appear. And that's King Pender, is it? Pender, Pender. Everyone forgets Pender. Yeah, no, that's, oh, that's another new character for yeah. me. I mean, I'm learning a lot. Yeah. Well, yes, he was an extraordinary character who um, uh, really created the Kingdom of Mercia, which is now Midland, England, and was one of the last of those Anglo-Saxon kings to steadfastly refuse to be baptised. So Mercia, in the mid-7th century, remained um, pagan. And um, I'm certain that his burial would be extraordinarily rich if it was ever found, if it hadn't been so, so it'll be somewhere so, in the Midlands, presumably, but, I mean, it could be underneath a motorway service station on the M1 or something today. Yes, but a clue to the quality of, of this was um, discovered only a few years ago, the famous Staffordshire hoard, which was found in a field um, just off the A5, uh, close to Tamworth, um, Litchfield, that area uh, where we know was the heart of the Mercian kingdom. And this was a hoard of um, gold and garnet jewellery and silver, uh, which um, is in some, in some ways even more sumptuous than that of the Anglo-Saxon Sutton who burial um, and um, if this is a hoard rather than associated with a burial but in this case it seems to be um, a collection of material that might have been war loot or something similar that was being brought together to be melted down and reworked so that there's undoubtedly then a lot more stuff out there uh, and again I, I i don't want to stress the whole treasure thing but i know that obviously king john famously lost uh, quite a lot of his crown jewels in the fens didn't he and but those have never been found or no no sense of those being discovered have they no no i mean you know that it's, it's a story um and um they might well be there uh, and they're endless TV shows that try and find them with very little yes. success. Yeah. So is there anybody actually actively searching for King Pender or King John or any of these sort of missing burials or crown jewels? Or, or is it are we just waiting to stumble upon them? Well, yes. I mean, as a professional serious ar archaeologist, we don't go in search of. Um, that's not what we do. We have a much wider research agenda. We're not 
treasure hunters hunting for treasure. I mean, we leave that to irreputable, you know, TV shows. Serendipitously, we do find and find these places, like, for example, the Brittle World Treasure. Um, these things are found. But by and large, it's it's not ethical for archaeologists to go out there treasure hunting. Um, we don't do it. We're, why, we're interested in a much wider story about society. What is your, uh, uh, just, uh, uh, is there a kind of them and us between proper academic archaeologists like yourself and, and a metal detectorist or do the worlds meet in a, in a, in a positive way or, or is there a kind of them and us feel? There used to be a horrendous them and us situation with metal detectorists but actually in the last few years um, the two have come together partly through the work of the Portable Antiquities Scheme which is this amazing scheme um, run through the British Museum which is essentially recording all the finds that metal detectorists unearth or those that responsible metal detectorists are unearthing and this enables them to be put on a map that then fills out much of the history and the landscape um, that the um, you know that these finds are producing but now it's not uncommon for metal detectorists to be involved in digs to go through the spoil heaps and actually being used for actual archaeological survey um, it's a very useful survey mechanism and essentially if they're there recording things properly recording the exact location of the finds it's a really useful archaeological tool uh, uh, mark uh, just towards the end now may i ask what you're working on are you working uh, any sort of particular digs or anything like that in the offing for you we've got this project at the moment in repton in derbyshire uh, which is the uh, winter camp of the great heathen army who came past Repton in Mercia in 873-4. And we've got this ongoing um, project. I was first involved in the excavations when I was at university back in the in the 80s, late 70s into the 80s, in which we discovered this extraordinary burial of dead Vikings, essentially, disarticulated remains of Vikings in a burial mound, reusing probably a royal burial chamber or royal mausoleum um, in the Vicarage Garden at Repton. And we've now returned 40 years later uh, to investigate the wider context of this burial um, in the long-suffering vicar, several vicars later, I should say. And so we've got this fascinating project in which we're finding more and more stuff, which I can't tell you about because it's so exciting. <laughs> Oh my gosh, so we're going to have to have you on again. So a whole heathen <laughs> army and all, and all their material. Um, so if, if people want to find out a little bit about it, is there any way they can at all? There must have been something written about it. Well, you could Google it, but actually my colleague and collaborator at On The Repton Project has actually published a book on it um, that, that, that came out last week um, called River Kings, uh, which is a fascinating account of the of the work at Repton and um, essentially taking the story of the Vikings all the way to India. Oh, my God. OK, well, that's, that sounds like quite something. Um, Mark, thank you so much for, for coming along. Uh, it, it's been a real pleasure and I've learned a lot. And I've, I, I, I am now, I know you think it's terribly unscrupulous of me, but I, I'm going to get my spade and try and find King Pender's burial site. I'm sure that I'll find it. And, and, and I think it is important, yeah, the serious point that, you know, basically anything we find underground is treasure in a way, whether it's made out of gold or, or fabric. But, you know, it tells us so much. But, you know, but thank you for indulging me in my, my somewhat schoolboyish romantic side. I really appreciate it. Delighted. Well, thanks, Guy, having me on. Great fun. Well, that's it for today, and I hope you really enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe to us either on Apple Podcasts, Google or Spotify. It doesn't matter which one. The important thing is, is that you subscribe. Now, next week, we're going to be escaping from Colditz. I'm not going to tell you much more, but it's going to be a lot of fun. 
And in the meantime, uh, do follow us on at uh, MailPlus on Twitter, or you can follow me personally at Guy Walters. I hope you have a great week and you stay well. Bye.